and through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. has turned to dust on Playhouse 90 became the Twilight Zone episode Dust. Old MacDonald had a curve on the Kraft Television Theatre became The Mighty Casey. Just two examples of episodes of other shows that became episodes of The Twilight Zone. As we've seen, Rod Serling was never one to let an unused idea go to waste or an idea that hadn't quite reached its full potential. But those are two examples of episodes of other shows that became Twilight Zones. Tonight, we'll examine when an episode of The Twilight Zone became another episode of The Twilight Zone. Now, when the subject of remaking films comes up in online conversation, one of the comments that will often crop up is, Why do they always remake the classics? Why don't they remake the bad things? Well, depending on your point of view, you could say that tonight's Twilight Zone does just that. If you've ever watched the season one episode, Mr. Beavis, then tonight's episode will seem very familiar. So we'll examine that further as we go along, but before then, Why don't we meet the young lady whose story we're going to follow tonight and the angel whose job it will be to guide her. Small message of reassurance to that horizontal young lady. Don't despair. Help is en route. It's coming in an odd form from a very distant place, but it's nonetheless coming. Apprentice Angel Cavender, it has come to our attention that you are the only angel of your class not to have won your wings. It has further come to our attention that you are a clod. Before reclassifying you, we're going to give you one more chance. Nice looking girl, Chief. Precisely. And she will be your project. You will return to Earth and supply her aid, assistance, and advice for a period of 24 hours. If you are able to improve her lot, we will reopen your case. Now, I do like to stay away from popular opinion and received wisdom before I enter the Twilight Zone, but I must admit that the reputation of tonight's episode very much precedes it. And when I saw Howard Smith, who played Mr. Miserable, in one of my favourite episodes, Stop at Willoughby, and John Fielder from Night of the Meek, both decked out in sparkling robes, I have to say, it didn't fill me with a great deal of confidence. But here on the Twilight Zone podcast, every episode has a fair chance to get its wings. So hold on to your halos, because Cavender is coming. Submitted for your approval. The case of one Miss Agnes Grepp. 
Put on earth with two left feet, an overabundance of thumbs, and a propensity for falling down manholes. In a moment, she will be up to her jaw in miracles, wrought by apprentice angel Harmon Cavender, intent on winning his wings. And though it's a fact that both of them should have stood in bed, they will tempt all the fates by moving into the cold, gray dawn of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on May 25th, 1962. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Christian Nyby. Whatever kind of review this episode gets in the end, it's bordering on full marks here for the opening narration. Our main character, Agnes Grepp, is on the floor, and then Rod Serling steps out of the mirror that is hanging on the wall. So first of all, it's really playing into my thoughts as Serling as this Twilight Zone being, and he can navigate it however he wants to, whether that's walking through a door or walking through a mirror. So top marks for interactivity, but I do think it could have maybe been staged and framed a little bit better to really get the impact of that mirror entrance, but I do like the idea of it. And then he says the line that has become synonymous with the show, even though I believe he only said it three times, and that line is of course submitted for your approval. Now, Rod Sailing Impressionists would probably have you believe in that he said it every week, but I think this is the first time he said it, and then he also said it in In Praise of Pip and a kind of stopwatch. And while I think there have been more poetic Sailing opening narrations, considering the subject matter here, it's probably more poetic than it has any right to be where he says tempting all the fates by moving into the cold grey dawn of the twilight zone. So it's great stuff. So directing his second and last twilight zone is Christian Nyby who returns after showdown with Rance McGrew. So perhaps a director who they have recruited again for his lighter touch. So here in our first post narration scene we have a lineup of ladies who work in a movie theatre of which Agnes Grepp is one, she's just started. But before we talk about her, let's take a moment to admire this set. The movie theatre with the grand staircase and all of the attendants in these fancy outfits. Now I adore the look of classic vintage movie theatres where it still felt like you were going somewhere special, where it had a certain amount of class to it. And were they ever this fancy? where the manager wore a bow tie and the staff were decked out in these sparkly outfits. I don't know, but I kind of like the space that they've created here. You're the do one? Yes, sir, Mr. Stout. (laughs) And I would like to say I'm just thrilled with this job. If you don't mind, Miss Grip. Now, for the benefit of the new recruit, I will go over very quickly the prescribed hand signals indicating assignment, position, and order of the day. Pay very close attention to this, Miss Grepp. I will repeat it only once. Very close attention, Miss Grepp. Now, the following are the position signals. That means spot girl position in the middle of the lobby, giving customers prescribed directions as to seating arrangements, such as stairway to your right, aisle two straight ahead, seating in the loge. That means 30-minute break. This is C. That means candy concession. That means box office. Requests for drinks of water will be handled in the following manner. I will respond thusly, or thusly. That means shoot. 
Now there's actually quite a lot to say about this scene, and we will talk more about our leading lady of course as we go on, but it's here that she gets this ridiculous direction from the theatre manager, and we can see that our leading actor is clearly a woman with a gift for physical comedy, and of course her name is Carol Burnett. And this scene is something that she asked Rod Serling to include, because it is based on real events from her first job as a cinema usherette when she was 15 years old. And Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. And she says, Mr. Batten was the manager's name. A tall thin man with a little bitty moustache. Very Brooks Brothers. I was paid 65 cents an hour and for that sum, we worked like dogs. Mr. B was a nut on signals. He never spoke, except to reprimand. He scared the hell out of everyone. When I started work there, I was as tall as I am now and had a loud voice, so I was made spot girl. This is the girl who always stands in the middle of the lobby, framed in an amber spot, and bellows, I'll two straight ahead, or the stairway to your right. Mr. B never said, you will be the spot girl. He simply put his right index finger on the palm of his left hand and made an about face and exited the lobby cutting square corners all the way. I had to ask the head usher what that meant. I then proceeded to wear my vocal cords thin for three solid hours. At the end of the three hours, Mr. B marched up to me, slapped his wrist and held up three fingers. This meant I was on a 30 minute break. I saluted, made an about face and cut square corners all the way to the john. This seemed to please him. Exactly 30 minutes later, a terrible buzzing sound rang through the ladies' room. The older and wiser usherette said it was a baton buzzing for us, so we marched upstairs single file standing there, shoulder to shoulder. We could see Batten standing at attention clear across the lobby, beginning his signal routine. One girl got one finger, and she saluted and marched to aisle one, flashlight in hand. Another girl got two fingers, so she marched to aisle two, and so on. He made a C with his fingers, and the next girl took her position behind the candy stand. Then of course, I received a finger on the palm bit, and returned to my battle position of the spot. It went on like this for a couple of weeks. We couldn't even ask if we could get a drink of water. Somehow, you would have to attract his attention, and then open your mouth and point frantically. He would either nod or shake his head. One day after a break, I was waiting for the familiar spot signal when he pulled a switch and gave that position to a new girl. I was terrified. What was he going to do with me? Then he did a strange thing. There he was, at least 40 feet across the lobby, and he waved at me. I waved back. I thought he wanted to be friends. He waved again. I waved again. He ran toward me, eyes blazing with fury, grabbed hold of my maroon satin uniform top and through clenched teeth said, That means box office, stupid. I was later fired because I wouldn't let some customers in on the last five minutes of strangers on a train. So I don't think we can go on much further without talking about our leading lady, Carol Burnett. So this is an instance where I find myself once again at a complete disadvantage to you, the audience. 
Of course, I have come across her when I was a child and I watched Annie, and perhaps one or two things where I haven't really known it was her, but I have to say that I just haven't really been exposed to her. But it doesn't take much digging online to see how revered and respected she is as a comedy pioneer, and thankfully she has an official YouTube channel that shows high-quality sketches from her self-titled show that ran from 1967 to 1978. So if you will excuse me telling you, my mostly American audience, probably a lot of stuff that you already know, I will carry on. So Carol Burnett was born in 1933, and she lived with her grandmother as a child because both of her parents were alcoholics. Now one of my favourite stories about her is that in second grade, she invented an imaginary twin sister called Karen, and she would run out of one entrance in the boarding house where she lived, change her clothes, and then come back in another entrance pretending to be her twin sister. And in college she actually wanted to be a playwright, but had to enter the acting programme in order to get into the playwright classes. And that's when she started performing and discovered her gift for making people laugh. But more than that, she said it felt like the warm comforting blanket that she had been missing throughout her hard younger life. And in her junior year at UCLA in 1954, a professor invited Carol Burnett and some other students to perform at a party in place of their class final that had been cancelled. And afterwards, a man and his wife approached her while she was stuffing cookies into her purse to take home to her grandmother. Now instead of reprimanding her for stealing the food, the man complimented her performance and asked her about her future plans. And when he learned that she wanted to go to New York to try her luck in musical comedy, but couldn't afford the trip, right then and there he offered her and her boyfriend a thousand dollars each interest free. And the condition of this was that the loans were to be repaid within five years, his name was never to be revealed, and if she achieved success, she would help others pursue their artistic dreams when she found herself there. So then, with that money in hand, she went to New York, and her star began to rise on Broadway, and she started getting small parts on screen. So by the time The Twilight Zone came around, she was still in this ascent. Now this is only her sixth credited role, and in four short years, she would begin the show that would make her a household name, The Carol Burnett Show. And she's never stopped working since, whether it's a guest spot on a sitcom, or voicing a character in Toy Story 4 last year. So how is she in this? I think she is making the best of what she has. The part at the beginning where she's in the theatre is genuinely amusing because it's her doing her thing, and she clearly has a talent for this kind of physical comedy. And she isn't weighed down by the leaden dialogue that would come up later in the episode. So while this might not be Carol Burnett in the best thing she's ever done, she is still quite enjoyable in it. So how did she end up on the Twilight Zone? Well the story of that actually feeds into one of my favourite things. I love it when a clip from those times emerges where Rod Serling appears on a talk show or a comedy show and he's always so happy to poke fun at all of this stuff 
and to poke fun at himself. And they really show what a great sense of humour he had. And Martin Grams Jr. documents this. He says on May 9th, 1961, Sailing appeared on the Gary Moore show. He had wandered there on invitation just to watch them rehearse because they were doing a repeat of a takeoff on the Twilight Zone. As Sailing described to his former teacher Helen Foley in a letter dated June 9th, 1961, I guess they took one look at me and decided that I was cookie enough to play the role myself. Hence, I got on. And once I got on, the smoke machine broke, and I was practically asphyxiated. If you happen to have seen me, you can understand why I was a little tilt. And it was on this program that Sailing met Carol Burnett in person. And after a discussion, he agreed to write a script with a part specifically for her. Good evening. I am Rod Surly. This is the Twilight Zone. That area in man's imagination that borders between stark reality and that fuzzy nowhere when you're loaded. Tonight we deal with the commonplace. A story of the ordinary, everyday problems that confront a man who suddenly finds that he's been turned into a mosquito. And now, won't you come with me into the Twilight Zone? So after being fired from her job for jumping through a mirror, it's time for Agnes Grepp to meet her guardian angel, Cavender. I, uh, I happen to be your guardian angel. Now, I know this might come to you as rather a shock. Used to cost a dime. Yes, I know. As I was saying, I've been given 24 hours to help you in every way possible. And that doesn't preclude the use of miracles. Oh, here, I'll hold him. Now it's a quarter. Uh, what's a quarter? The bus fare you pay. Yes, I know. That's just my point, Miss Grant. I didn't pay to get on this bus. So the episode Mr. Beavis was supposed to be a pilot of sorts for a sitcom that Sailing wanted to develop, and the show was going to be the misadventures of Beavis and his guardian angel on a week-to-week basis. But when that didn't get off the ground, Sailing dusted off the idea again in the hope that he could develop the comedy series from Cavender is Coming. But this time, the star would be Cavender, the guardian angel, who would come down to Earth every week and help another guest star, of which Carol Burnett was the first, and obviously the last. Now originally, the episode, and then of course the series that might have come off the back of it, was going to be called The Side of the Angels. And Rod Serling even recorded the promo last week using that name. But they ran into troubles because another network had a show or were developing the show of the same name. And you can even tell that that promo was recut and Rod Serling speaks the words Cavender is coming and that's kind of pasted on the end of it. And the list that they made for the role of Cavender has some very recognisable names on it, including Keenan Wynn and Tom Bosley, but also Jonathan Winters, William Bendix, Burgess Meredith, and Jack Klugman. Hiya, gang! What do you say? Hi, Aggie. You got candy today. Have I got some candy? You close your eyes. All right. Here's one for you. 
And here's one for you. On this potato pancake stuff, how many eggs? It's uh, one egg and half an onion. How's the job, Aggie? It was, or past tense. Uh, you didn't go lose another one. Yep, lost another one. Plonsky's Bijou of famous Hollywood hits. Oh, I was great in reconnaissance and infiltration, but I flunked close-order drill. Oh, Aggie, I busted my cookie. You busted your cookie? Well, now, you know doggone good and well I have another cookie here for you, don't Thank you? Thank you. You're welcome. So Cavender is here to help Agnes Grepp, and something that I've noticed Sailing will often do when he is depicting one of life's lovable oddballs is to show them in their neighborhood interacting with their neighbors but especially the children it's like he presents it as a kind of clue to how good they are that they are always so good with children and agnes grepp is no exception we get a nice pleasant scene here showing that yes she is successful in these interactions with other people but it's holding down jobs that is the problem for her and the angel who proposes to fix it for her is Cavender played by Jesse White. And he is a two-time Twilight Zone player. Maybe he doesn't have the best list of Twilight Zone episodes. Unfortunately, he has this one and Once Upon a Time where he played the repairman. But he was certainly one of our hard-working actors of the day and he popped up in all kinds of things. Movies like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Harvey, the James Stewart movie, and The Bad Seed in 1956. And his career would keep on going and the last role that he played was in 1996 in an episode of Seinfeld. And he passed away in 1997 at the age of 80. And in this, you know, he is pleasant enough. There's not much more I can really say about it. He is doing the part justice as it is on paper. It's interesting that Tom Bosley was on the list for potentially playing this part because he very much reminds me of Tom Bosley. But what exactly does Cavender propose to do to help Agnes? Now, in cases of this kind, I try to examine the problems and, and then alleviate them. Now, in your case, Miss Grepp, it seems that you can't hold on to a job. Would you like a cup of tea? No. Now, the way we attack this employment problem is to fix it so that you're independently wealthy and, and don't even need employment. Wine. I have some sherry. Miss Grepp, we are discussing the alteration of, of your entire future. As I said earlier, when people discuss bottom tier Twilight Zones, Mr. Beavis' name will generally come up. And I actually watched it fairly recently, and while I still wouldn't move it up from the bottom tier, I did warm to it more than I ever have before. I didn't find it particularly funny, but I didn't find it to be annoyingly bad either. It's pretty gentle stuff. And while the comedy generally missed the mark, the heart behind it didn't. So I appreciated the message of be yourself, don't bow to the expectations of others, and don't let them tell you how you should live your life. Now up until about the 13 minute mark in Cavender is Coming, I'm more or less on the same page. It's the same story. It's pretty gentle, inoffensive stuff. And I don't really know Carol Burnett, but it's clear she has some spark to her, and she is very likeable here as well. But I guess the turn it takes for me that drops it down a few notches is when Cavender takes Agnes to her new mansion, where there's a party taking place. All yours, my dear. 
Agnes Shivery. Ah! We'll cook it with the Unravel the flesh, will you? <laughs> My dear, you are exquisite, enchanting, delightful. And I intend to notify Charlie that this was the high social Did point you know, of the season. Now, this is what I call a miracle. The best martini I ever conjured. So about three minutes of screen time is devoted to this obnoxiously loud party. And while the comedy hasn't generally worked for me so far, it's been inoffensively gentle. But as Agnes speeds through the party, we get all of these gags and none of them work. There's these loud characters who are trying to get her affection, who are talking and shouting, and there's this fast forward effect as Agnes speeds through it. And I get that she isn't enjoying it either, and that's part of the point. But while I can let the gentle gags go, this part of the episode really does fall flat for me. But it does lead to quite a nice moment with Carol Burnett, and this is where the moral of this episode begins to become apparent. Well, Miss Grip, you know that old saying, you can't have your cake and also eat it. Well, I, I, I mean, somebody's got to pay the fiddler. After all, you, you know, and everybody knows that the, the whole philosophy of, of living is a kind of a, a give-and-take thing. And after all, when... Well, what'd you expect? Not much of anything, really. Except... Oh, except that... Except what? Friends, maybe. So now we're about 17 minutes in, and already we pretty much know what the point of the episode is. Cavender thinks that all of Agnes' problems can be solved with money and putting her in high society, but she pines for her simple life, where she didn't have much, but she had friends. My dear Miss Grepp, my charming Miss Grepp, don't you want to be happy? Mr. Cavender, you don't understand me. I was happy. I want it the way it was. The way it was? Unstable, unresolved, and unemployed? Disconnected, discombobulated, and behind in my rent. But that's for me. That and then and the babysitting and the bowling and the potato pancakes. So was the second time the charm? Was Rod Sailing going to get his second television series based off this episode? Could Cavender succeed when Mr. Beavis failed? Well, part of the downfall of that is documented in Martin Grams Jr.'s book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, and he talks about a gentleman by the name of Ray Williford, and that word plagiarism rears its ugly head again. He claimed that in 1954 he developed a concept for a television series which he called Guardian Angels Incorporated, which was, in essence, the basic format of Cavender is Coming. And he said he discussed this idea with Rod Serling on the set of a show called Saddle the Wind. And his claim was that Rod Serling subconsciously stole the idea. But the truth of it is, this was a time when this Guardian Angel concept 
had actually been used many times before. It was all about what you did with it. And then it was done on several shows after that as well. And Martin Grams Jr. documents in a letter from Sam Kaplan, I laid into the fact that at this time, in Rod's opinion, and in the opinion of the salespeople in our organisation, Cavender is Coming will not sell as a series. And if there should be a surprise sale, it will be something short of a miracle. I hate to do this, Cavender. I really do. I, I understand, sir. As a matter of fact, I... Why, this is incredible. Oh, she's... She's... Happy. <laughs> Just look at her, sir. Yes. Why, she's six times happier than the way I found her. She's deliriously and totally happy. <laughs> well, I don't see how that could be. But she is. Just just look at her. You see what she's doing, sir? What is that? She's bowling. She, she goes bowling every Thursday night. So Cavender eventually comes round as well. And when he gets back to heaven, the boss sees that Agnes is happy, so all is right in heaven and on earth. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, one of the things that I love about this Twilight Zone journey is seeing all of these moments, big and small, where Rod Sailing has recycled something that never really worked the first time round. And sometimes it's a small thing like a name being reused, and other times it's something bigger like a character from a script that didn't work being put into something else. And in this case, it's a whole episode of The Twilight Zone being remade. Mr. Beavis becomes Cavender is Coming. So this aspect is quite fascinating to me because, because over the last few years there has been a bit of an anthology renaissance. But could you really imagine a show repeating itself like this within the space of three series? But I think, of course, this was a different time where people didn't have seasons of DVDs and Blu-rays sitting on their shelves at home. And although there were still repeats, you would never know when you were going to see something again. So it's fair to say that maybe Mr. Beavis wasn't as strong in people's minds then as it is to the average Twilight Zone fan now. Clearly Rod Sailing must have had a real belief in this concept as a potential series, and it didn't quite fly with Mr. Beavis, so he wanted to give it another shot. So it was definitely a well-intentioned thing. He wasn't just trying to sneak out the same episode again. But was it worth another shot? Now I'm no expert on the American sitcom scene at that time, but it's certainly reminiscent of sitcoms that would come a couple of years later, like I Dream of Genie and Bewitched, the comedies that hinge on a supernatural gimmick. And gimmick sitcoms, supernatural or not, did stay with us for many, many years and are probably around now. And I always think of the running gag in Seinfeld, where Jerry Seinfeld is trying to develop a sitcom where he's in a car accident and the person who caused it is sentenced to become his butler. So Cavender is typical of that gimmicky kind of sitcom where it all hinges on this gimmick and then they sort of play around with it every week. So looking back at it now, it is silly, but it wasn't so much at the time and maybe with a tweak here and there, it could have been the next Bewitched or I Dream of Genie, and both of those shows did run for many, many years. But unfortunately, we're looking at it now. 
and for this viewer at least, it's just not funny. The one scene where I was amused where Carol Burnett shows herself to have that talent as a physical comic at the beginning of the episode isn't really enough to save it from what comes after. Now I don't hate it, I don't think it's really an awful, awful Twilight Zone, but it's not really what I watch the Twilight Zone for. And by that same token, I don't watch episodes of Bewitched or I Dream of Genie either, so there's really not much that brings me to Cavender is Coming. And I did re-watch Mr. Beavis recently, and while that does have a reputation as a bad Twilight Zone, I did warm to it more than I ever have before. Because its core message is still a good one. Be yourself, don't try to conform just because everyone else says that you should, and the world is a better place for the cooks and the oddballs who hold friendship and kindness above everything else. I still didn't find that particularly funny either, but it's a gentle episode and that gentle message could still carry me along to some degree. And with Cavender, the message is more or less the same, but I think in Cavender is Coming, Sailing focuses a bit more on the wealth aspect. Money doesn't buy happiness. Whereas in Beavis, it was looking more at ironing out his oddball tendencies. So either way, the messages are good ones. But I suppose the problem is, I have one bottom tier Twilight Zone that gives me that message already with Mr. Beavis. I don't particularly need another bottom tier episode to do it again. But that's what we get with Cavender. Now if Cavender is Coming was great, then sure, let's do it, let's do that story again. But it's not, and Rod Sailing knew that as well. In a letter to Carol Burnett, he said, The show you did for us is not good, and it's not bad, which makes it lousy. With a combination of talents like yours and Jesse's, it should have been walloping exceptional. That it isn't, points up to the fact that you were done wrong by all concerned. The script, I guess, is part of the trouble, but even more culpable is the direction. This was quite the most heavy-handed, ham-fisted, squarest directing I've ever cried through. God knows when it's scheduled for, and I hope you'll be out on a ferry boat someplace and won't have to see it. I promise you that if given a second chance, ever, I'll make it up. So I could see how it might be one of those episodes that comes up for re-evaluation a few years after people have initially seen it, and they find that maybe it's not quite as bad as they remember. There are definitely worse Twilight Zones than this, but it's just not for me. And it's a shame really, because even as well as the autobiographical scene in the movie theatre early on, this is kind of the Carol Burnett story. The story of a quirky young woman trying to make a life for herself in the city. Discovering that success to her is not hiding that quirky side, but celebrating it. For Carol Burnett, that led to a life of giving people laughter. So it is sadly a bit of a missed opportunity. But I guess if you squint enough, you can kind of see that. A word to the wise now to any and all who might suddenly feel the presence of a cigar-smoking helpmate who takes bank books out of thin air. If you're suddenly aware of any such celestial aids, it means that you're under the beneficent care of one Harmon Cavender, guardian angel. And this message from the Twilight Zone. 
Lots of luck. So there we go. Cavender is coming. Its reputation preceded it, but I think we gave it a fair shot, you know. And at the end of the day, like I said, there are worse episodes out there. It's uh, it's not offensively bad. It, it is what it is. So I realized that the listener feedback aspect of the podcast has kind of went by the by recently because just a number of things really. Binghamton throwing my schedule off a bit and it was a case of we are so close to the end of season three that I really wanted to try and get it done this year because in season four I believe there are only 18 episodes and I think that's quite achievable in the space of a year. Now there will be a break obviously for season two of the new Twilight Zone but still I think 18 episodes is achievable so I would like to get to that mark. Now I am still hoping to get the last episode of season three out before the end of the year that's what I'm working towards. Then in early January I like to do a couple of wrap-up episodes just to say so long to the season that has just been. And one of them I like to do with Luke who took over the show for those episodes. But another one I like to do with the listeners. Now, I did it last time where there was maybe like five or six calls where I spoke to the listeners directly. And it was great. I really enjoyed doing it. But the problem is you need to then make time to speak to those six people uh, at different times. So it's a little bit difficult this year to find the time to do that because most listeners are in the US. So the time difference really makes that difficult sometimes. So what I've decided to do because the feedback shows were so successful when we were looking at the new Twilight Zone, we'll do it in that format this time. And the specific questions that I'm going to put out there, and I will read them to you in a moment. But basically, if you have about five minutes for your feedback, you can either choose to answer all of these questions, or you can spend that five minutes answering one or two of them. It's whatever you've really got to say. So let's say one of the questions was, what's your favorite performance in a season three episode? One of those performances might be really special to you and you've got a lot to say about it. So you could spend the whole five minutes talking about uh, so-and-so's performance in whatever episode. Or like I said, if you want to answer all the questions or just a couple of them or just three or four of them, then you can spend your five minutes doing that as well. And then I will put it all together in a nice end-of-season wrap-up show. Uh, like I did with those listener feedback episodes of the new Twilight Zone. So I'll read the questions to you now, and then if you email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com with your answers, then I will put it together in that show. Now, I would prefer MP3 clips if possible, mainly because uh, when time's at a premium, it's just easier to put that together rather than me uh, reading emails. But I will take them, so if you are really struggling to do a recording, then I will take an email as well. But, you know, it's so easy to do now, and most of the stuff I get is just people talking into their smartphone, and I'm happy to accept that. It's fine, the quality is fine for what we're doing on these episodes. So, the questions are, what is your favourite episode in Season 3? What is your least favourite episode of Season 3? 
What do you think is an underappreciated episode in season 3? One that maybe people do like it, but maybe you think it's actually better than people give it credit for. What's your favourite acting performance in season 3? And what are you looking forward to us covering in season 4? So those are the questions. Either put it on an MP3 clip and email it to me at tomofthetwilightzonepodcast.com That would be my preference. Or send me an email with uh, the answer to one or all of those questions on it as well. Now speaking of feedback, a good friend of the show, Uncommon NASA, has sent some feedback in about sailing Bradbury and the body electric. Take it away, NASA. Hey, what's up, Tom? Uncommon NASA here. I wanted to drop a quick line regarding the last episode in terms of Ray Bradbury and his controversial take on on Rod Serling and also a little bit on the episode itself. I said the body electric. I think I'll start with with the Ray Bradbury stuff. I mean, I've read a lot about that as well. Um, I'm not particularly an expert on Ray Bradbury's work, but I would say, you know, for every Rod Serling, there's going to be a Ray Bradbury to some degree. I think when you have success and you're considered a person of a certain standard, um, it will always bring out jealousy in others. I, I think to some degree I've experienced it and I have a, a, a minute fraction of, of any level of success compared to Rod Serling. I think you're always going to have someone that wants to knock you down when you have success, especially if you have success in a way that, that people deem honorable or, or respect. I think sometimes the people that try to knock you down are also well known. It just works out that way. And um, I think, unfortunately, that's the case here. I think it was a lot of professional jealousy. And, uh, you know, I guess some hurt feelings. I had actually read some things that didn't come up uh, on the episode that you did that, you know, they used to actually travel together, um, like as families on trips and things like that, that, that Ray and, and Rod were were rather close. I think even the wives knew each other. Uh, you know, I, I read that somewhere. And at a certain point, obviously, there was a falling out and... I think when you accuse somebody of plagiarism, you really can't come back from that unless you have hard evidence that that's actually the case. And in the case of uh, walking distance, I know that one of the points that was made was, um, I guess Bradbury had written a story about uh, a carousel that acted as a time machine when it when it spun. And the idea that you could charge plagiarism for a story like walking distance, um, using that as a, as a method, I mean, Obviously, the carousel didn't do that in Walking Distance. It was just an element of his past that he enjoyed. Um, the actual mechanism for which he traveled back in time um, really was never actually put out there in the episode. I think when your accusations are that flimsy, you really have to have hard evidence, and I don't think Bradbury ever did. Uh, and I think a lot of the things he said are really disturbing. Um, Unfortunately, as, as Twilight Zone fans and as, as Rod Serling fans, we sort of had to live with the fact that there are probably going to be Ray Bradbury fans and, and uh, believers, um, and there's really just nothing you can do about that. I think that one thing that you learn from these times that we live in now is that if someone wants to perpetrate a lie, um, it, it can and will be believed by a large amount of people, and you know you just have to keep living life in terms of like the way Serling would have reacted toward plagiarism there, there is a little bit of a conversation in your episode about how he cut off the submittal process and part of that 
I'm guessing was because of the controversy that happened with Sounds and Silences, um, which was not a very good episode of Twilight Zone, probably bottom 10, I would say. And um, it, it was, um, he was actually sued, um, and the Twilight Zone was sued, and they, they lost a, a whopping $3,500, which I guess at that time was, was a decent amount of money. Um, because someone had submitted a script uh, for a similar or even you know close to the same story as that plot. And I think, if I remember right, Sterling's response at the time was, you know, it, it writing as much as he did, I'm paraphrasing here, but writing as much as he did constantly and reading scripts as much as he did, it's impossible to not take influence. And if he did, then, you know, then, then you know, that's, you know, he it wasn't intentional. I don't know if that sort of paraphrase quote was related directly to Sounds and Silences or just a general thing that he would say, but I do remember that being put out there and, and I can understand that. Um, you know, if you search the internet, there's a lot of sort of conspiracy theorists pointing to old 50s like B comic books and saying this is a Twilight Zone, that's a Twilight Zone, as if those B, you know, key comic books aren't stories borrowed from somewhere else to begin with, as if the, you know, the creative uh, juices really flowed through, um, you know, children's comic, sci-fi comic books in the 1950s, and that's where all those sci-fi thoughts came from. We're all sort of a sum of our influences, and uh, Rod Serling is no different. He, he may be um, one of the greatest of all time, but no one is not human and no one is not without influence. And I think when you start to flex influence into the word plagiarism, that is sort of a distinct thing that as a fellow writer, if you're doing that, there's a certain level of malice to that because you know that you're manipulating um, a public that doesn't understand that as well as you do because they're not writers and they don't understand the process as well. I feel like that's one of my biggest issues with that whole situation and you know unfortunately for some of us it's it, it, it affects the way that we would think about Rip Bradbury's work and to that point you know the episode itself I, I've always really loved the episode. I, I think it's great. I think it's um, I wouldn't say it's top tier but it's probably just below. It's probably like top mid tier I would say in my opinion, um, I really don't find any flaw in it. I was really surprised to hear about the two directors and having to recut and all the editing and even the controversy with, with that line being cut out and all that. I, I think I had heard about the line part being cut out and that being an issue for Ray Bradbury, but I I did not hear about the two directors, you know, and them having to recut and all that. I, and I would have never thought that if you hadn't pointed that out. I, I thought it was seamless, though the acting was seamless. I thought it was all really well done, and um, I think Ray Bradbury's story was probably helped tremendously by being put through the filter of Rod Serling and his team. Um, when you read the passages that you've read, Tom, of, of some of Ray Bradbury's work, and there is um, a bit of a juvenile approach toward uh, misogyny in a lot of his work, and that's not uncommon within science fiction. But it is something that was rather uncommon in the Twilight Zone and in Rod Serling's work. Um, Rod was not always the best at writing female voices, although at times I think he is not given as much credit as he deserves for doing that. Uh, there are other times where um, sometimes they they are not the best written characters in all of his work, but he, he's never written anything that I can recall that, that launches into sort of the level of juvenile misogyny that is in some of Ray Bradbury's work and you see none of that in 
as in the body electric. Obviously, it's a different subject matter. There'd be no real place for that there, but I think that's part of why that story was chosen in particular. I think a lot of the emotion in this episode feels like other Twilight Zones, so I think that, you know, where that comes from comes from that, and uh, I just, I thought it was a great episode. I, I can't knock it as much as, <laughs> as much as maybe I would like to. I thought it was perfect across the board. Uh, your point about the uh, the actress playing the grandmother having that sort of old-timey stage presence and, and a different style acting, I, I would have never thought of that either, but I'm sure that was a skill set that really helped her play a robot. In any case, I thought it was a great episode. I just want to point out Veronica Cartwright. I thought as a child actor, you know, really emotional delivery. And I think the scene where, where you know, she almost gets hit by the car and they're all that sort of drama where she's shouting you know it's it's heart-wrenching and it's great it's you know it's it's what you want from the twilight zone and i would also point out that another movie that she was in that is well known is uh the 1979 invasion of the body snatchers where she's famously sort of in the end scene that has become uh, a pretty big meme uh on the internet with donald sutherland's closing scene i won't spoil it if you haven't seen the movie and if you haven't seen the movie you should definitely see it it's amazing but yeah between that and the, and the alien exploding on her she has two of the more memorable scenes really in the history of, of science fiction film so um that's all i really have on the episode and on bradbury hopefully all that kind of comes together and makes some sense just wanted to put my two cents out there because I, I i do feel it um at times you do feel that pressure of you know for every step forward you take with success there's somebody that try to knock you down and uh it can be really troubling when that person is also considered a giant in their field. And one last thing, Cavender is coming. It's not that bad. It's not that good, but it's not that bad. If anyone thinks that's the worst episode, they probably need to see more episodes. <laughs> there are some other ones that are worse. I find that entertaining um, in a lot of ways. So I'm not sure where you landed on it, but I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, at least more interesting than some of the other really bad ones um, that have come before it and will come after it. So, have a good one, Tom. Some good points on the Ray Bradbury episode there. And Nasser actually raises a good point. He mentioned when Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling would actually travel to things together, or they did on one occasion at least. So there's more to this story than I actually put in the episode, because obviously there's only so much I can put in, and... Often it's a case of choosing what to leave out as well as what to put in. So I would recommend reading Amy's book maybe on the subject. And there's also stuff in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that I included. One of the interesting things that I kind of took out wholesale because it was a case of either include it or don't because you can't really partially include it is if you look at the timeline of uh, Ray Bradbury's accusations of plagiarism with the work that came out, the kind of interactions he had with Sailing, and then how his accusations changed over the years. It doesn't really support his accusations, and it's quite an interesting timeline, but because, but because it has some detail to it, it was a case of there's only so much I can put in, so I will leave that out. But that's really worth examining if you read up on it in those books. So thank you, NASA, for writing in. 
Now, one of the things I've kind of fell out with as well is thanking iTunes reviewers. So I'll thank these ones. The Dark Jedi Knight, thank you so much for your iTunes review. Jimmy Olsen, thank you for your review as well. And BWG, aka Jay the Big White Guy. Okay, thank you, Jay. Um, Heather C. SD, thank you so much for your review. Gene Everett, thank you. And then Guru of Awesomeness, thank you so much as well. Now over on Patreon, what I tend to do usually is assign people episodes. Uh, it's as if you're sponsoring an episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. Now, I'm kind of mixing things up over on Patreon, and I'm going to be doing things in a little bit of a different way going forward. That's kind of in process at the moment, uh, maybe for the first quarter of next year. So I haven't assigned episodes. I'm not sure whether that's something I'll keep doing or whether I will change that into something else. So I just want to thank these new patrons though. Shelley Grisker, thank you for becoming a patron. Uh, Andrew Neff, thank you so much. And Diana Spranklin, thank you for becoming a patron as well. And in case I missed you, I'm not sure whether I mentioned these people, but Heather Circle, thank you so much for becoming a patron. Ralph Carasillo, Rebecca Kinsel, Sandra K. Branson, thank you so much as well. Hilary Fearjohn, and also Emmy O'Sullivan. Thank you all for becoming patrons. And uh, like I said, I've got a bit of a interesting, weird kind of concept that I'm going to be going with uh, over on Patreon. But I will, uh, I will let you know more about that when it's closer to the time. So thank you for your support. So my plan is to get Season 3 finished by the end of 2019. Whether that episode drops before Christmas Day or not, I don't know. But I hope it'll definitely be before the end of the year. So if I don't speak to you before Christmas Day, have a happy Christmas. I hope you enjoy it, whatever you are doing. And as always, I hope you will join me in raising a glass to the great man on his birthday, Rod Serling's birthday on the 25th of December. Let's remember him on that day too. Arness. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations. <laughs>